Open God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter, chapter 3. Actually, I'll be reading verses 2.11 through 3.7. Our focus will be on 3.1 through 7. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you suffer and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness." By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good, And do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your people to return to an exile, stranger, alien kind of mentality in how we approach 
marriage. Rather than trying to have any kind of simple conservative view that is of this world, may we seek this kind of radical, kingdom, heavenly view that's otherworldly, that shines with glory and beauty and has the the blessed honor of being a sign of the relationship of Christ to His bride. And so for the glory of His name we ask this. Amen. If you don't bolster the castle precisely where it's being attacked, you lose the castle. That seems an obvious enough principle, but you would think that the church believes that if you reinforce the west wall, it will protect the southern wall that's being attacked. Some would rather not focus on a text like this, saying there are more important wars to fight, there there are more important things to defend, but such an approach doesn't realize the nature of the war. Compromise on egalitarianism and feminism pave the way for compromise concerning gender and homosexuality. And I'm speaking in regards of the church, not our culture at large, though that bears witness as well. I'm speaking about the church. It's true that not all battles are equally crucial, but what kind of soldier worth of salt goes into a battle thinking, eh, let's lose this one, not that important. The point of a war is to win, and you win a war by winning battles. We are exiles in a world that is set against righteousness. And we shouldn't be thinking, having this kind of mentality of what battles can we lose, but seeking to win as many as we can, seeking to uphold truth and righteousness and love in every area. And the battle on this front is essential. There are, more, there are battles that are more important. There are battles that are more or less crucial. But this battle is essential. If this tower, if the tower of marriage and sexuality falls, the castle goes with it. The whole foundation is at stake in this particular fight. Any battle about marriage and sexuality, as we see it in texts like this, cannot simply be about marriage and sexuality. It concerns Scripture. It isn't that the Bible is lacking clarity on this point concerning men and women and how they should relate. The problem is the Bible's clarity. And so make no mistake, whenever they are heavily catapulting the south tower of marriage and the south wall of sexuality, make no mistake that what they're really after, what they really want to destroy, is the entire castle built upon the foundation of Scripture. This is because the real problem that the Gentiles have is not with a man submitting to a woman. Uh, Excuse me, with a woman submitting to a man. The real problem they have is with a man submitting to Christ. They reject the cornerstone. They they stumble over him. He's a rock of offense to them. They don't like what marriage is ultimately a sign of. A bride submitting to her bridegroom. 
See, the testing ground for repentance and faith is never where the culture happens by God's common grace to align with God's truth. The testing ground of repentance and faith are precisely where the rub is. And this is where the rub is to a large extent in our culture. And thus we must hold this out, calling for repentance and faith. Peter has called for submission to authority in three spheres. Government, verses 13 through 17 of chapter 2. Slaves to Lord, verses 18 through 25 of chapter 2. And now, this morning, we're looking at the submission of wives to their husbands, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3. Together, this section has been called the household code. Speaking of how society uh, is to be ordered. And we have three of them in the New Testament. The other two are both in Paul's letters, Ephesians 5 and 6, Colossians 3 and 4. And we have pagan instances of such codes as well. And what makes the biblical codes distinct is the lordship of Christ. The pagan codes spoke of the lordship of the paterfamilias, the head of the household. Whenever you're reading those household codes and you read father, and then you read lord or master, and and then you read uh, husband, what you need to realize is that in the pagan codes and, and even in the biblical codes, those were largely, for the most part, the same person in mind in all of those, the head of the household. And so the pagan codes only addressed the head of the household and they only spoke of his rights, which he was to exact by whatever means necessary from those underneath him. The biblical codes address wives and slaves and children, calling for them to submit. And whenever they do so, You see, the Scripture has this voice of a superior authority that they are to submit for the Lord's sake. And so can you see why so many thought Christianity so detrimental to society that it it would destroy the social fabric of the Roman Empire which was built upon power coming from the top down? One commentator writes, in a masterful move, Peter both upholds and subverts the social order, but... I think the the subversion aspect is much more prominent than the upholding. The saints are not conservatives. They're radicals. They're aliens. They're strangers. They, They come from a future age and they're living a life that belongs to that future age in a way that's threatening those who are part of this world that is perishing and fading. They attack us Because our presence threatens their castle, which will fall, while we have been promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, the biblical codes are unique, but this one in particular is unique, not in the sense of contrast, as though it's saying something different from the ones we see in Paul's letter, but by way of emphasis. Whenever you come to Paul's code in Ephesians, the wife is briefly treated and it's the husband that's elaborated on. You see the opposite here, while in Colossians both are just briefly spoken of. Whenever you read this code, you notice that the Lord's receive no commands, the masters receive no commands as they do in Colossians or Ephesians. Why why this difference? What, What lies underneath it? 
Well, Peter's letter, he's speaking about suffering under unbelievers, suffering as we make this pilgrimage towards home. And he's been emphasizing in each of these these fears, this submission to authority, the idea is that it's an unbelieving authority. Remember that the heading for this whole section comes in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And so this is honorable conduct among the Gentiles whom we might happen to be under in the spheres of government, in terms of employment, even as a slave or in marriage. Peter is concerned about honorable conduct in relation to unbelievers whose authority you might happen to be under. But he's calling for submission in, in each of these instances. So why is this so shocking? Why, why would this have the Gentiles in such a tiff? Because it's not done in reference to them as Lord, but Christ as Lord. You're to submit to these authorities insofar as you can as an act of submission unto Christ. Fear of God, not fear of man, is what's to drive your action. Now, as with slaves, so here with wives, you have Peter telling someone under authority how they should relate to that authority. So to catch how radical this is, just think if someone came into your home and started telling your wife how they were to act in regards to you. Not in the sense of that they're a beloved counselor or a trusted friend or a pastor or a minister, nothing of that sort. They come in there and they're not speaking of this is just in the sense of this would be right, but they're acting as if they are the authority that determines how your wife should behave. How would you respond, husbands? That's something of what Peter is doing here. Upon what authority, though? Not his own, but as he says in one one, as an apostle of Christ Jesus. And realize this, there are voices that are speaking to your marriage and, and telling you how it should be. But you're okay with this because you think you're Lord. You think you're determining which voices uh, you'll give credence to. Back then, the predominant message among the culture was, man is Lord of woman. Today it is, woman is Lord of woman. But the biblical emphasis that's so radical is Christ is Lord of all. And that's amplified whenever you look at why it is Peter tells them they should submit. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. Not obeying the word means they're unbelievers. 2.18 spoke of those who do not believe, stumbling over Christ because they disobey the word. 4.17, he mentions those who do not obey the gospel of God. Winning them clearly communicates the idea of their conversion, of their coming to faith. Paul uses it this way in 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some." But how is it that these husbands are one without a word? You remember Peter's just told us in chapter 1 that we're born again. 
by the living and abiding word, which is the good news that was preached to us. So how is it that they're one again without the word? Preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, is a false statement falsely attributed to Francis of Assisi. It's doubly false. It's a double lie. It's necessary to use words to preach the gospel because the gospel is good news. That's what gospel means. It's not good advice. It's good news. It's a declaration. It's not something you live. It's something that was lived for you. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's Christ himself, his person, who he is and what he's done. So what does it mean then without a word? Without a word is describing be subject, later spoken of as a gentle and quiet spirit. But a submissive spirit all by itself wouldn't win a husband in this way. There has to be something unique to this. Submission was expected. Why is it that this submission would win them? Because the submission in particular here spoken of is is the hope for these unbelieving husbands to be one whenever they see this conduct that is respectful and pure. The word that you have respect in verse 2 is the same word that's uh, respectful. It's the same word poorly translated respect in 2.18 regarding uh, slaves to their lords. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. We talked about how our English translations uh, do us a disservice in trying to smooth out the Greek uh, syntax by rearranging the word order. More strictly translated, it reads, Slaves, submit, uh, excuse me, slaves, with all respect, submit to your earthly masters. And so whenever it says with all, excuse me, with all fear, it's, this is the same word that you have well translated in 2.17 as fear God. It's a word that we get our English word phobia, phobia from. Fear, fear God. And whenever you, you correct the word order as it is in the original language to be servants, with all fear, you're more naturally inclined to take that back to God, who's just mentioned as fearing God, than forward to the relation to your earthly master. Fear God. And you read Peter and you realize all the time Peter is wanting to direct fear towards God and away from man. So 2.17, fear God. In chapter 1, verse 17, Peter exhorts, If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter will tell these women, Do not fear anything that is frightening. That would include a threatening husband. In 3.13 and 14, he tells these exiles, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So the hope is that these unbelieving husbands will bow the knee to Christ when they behold their wife bowing the knee to Christ, even whenever that Christ calls for them to submit to a husband who doesn't believe in their Lord. Likewise, pure conduct is unto God. This fear is unto God, and the pure conduct, the standard, the reference point, as all throughout this text, whenever we're told to do good, whenever we're told to live honorable lives, this isn't in reference to how they are defined by the Gentiles, but in reference to God. Pure conduct means a holy life. Holy means separate. This is is a call to live as exiles 
and sojourners in an honorable way. At this time, again, it would be expected that wives would submit. And that would mean for them that the wife would worship her husband's God. Plutarch writes, A wife should not acquire her own friends, but would make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and to shut the door and to superstitious cults and strange superstitions. So can you see why this would be a double strike against a wife in this culture? First, her foremost friends, the gods, would, would be a different god. But then as she's part of the covenant community, she would have this different circle of friends from her husband's. The Roman Empire was fine whenever they conquered a people with those people maintaining their gods so long as they made this confession, Caesar is Lord. But what would have blown their minds is for a wife to worship a different god. This would be viewed as subversion at the highest level. Peter is calling for these women to demonstrate a fear of God and a fearlessness of man that yet serves and submits to that man seeking his best. He's calling for these women to exhibit an exotic, an alien, a foreign, a strange beauty that will be used to win them to their Lord. Now, ladies, many of you, whenever you, you married, you may have gone into it thinking of all the ways you could change him. <laughs> and to any who may be single, if you go into it that way, don't. But there is a way that you should properly seek change. But it's not change in reference to you acting as Lord and Him as slave, designing Him how you would like Him to be, but with Christ as Lord. And this means you, you would desire two things. One, if He's an unbeliever, you, you desire His salvation. And, and then beyond that, you desire His sanctification. And in that way, you're acting as His helper. Now, if you really want to help your husband and see change unto Christ as Lord, if that's your aim, how do you do it? The text is really clear. How does, how, how, what, what does God use to bring that about? One, fear God. Two, pursue holiness. Three, submit. It's counterintuitive to push your husband into loving leadership. Because if he does assert it, he isn't leading. You are. You have. You cannot persuasively preach Christ as Lord while demonstrating a disregard for the authorities that He set in place by His sovereign hand. And so submit to them, demonstrating what it means to bow the knee to Christ as Lord and the freedom and the liberty that are there. Concerning his beloved mother, Augustine wrote, though he, his father Patrick, though he had not yet come to faith, he did not obstruct my right to follow my mother's devotion. You, you realize how he says this is odd, this was different. He didn't obstruct it. 
so as to prevent my believing in Christ. She anxiously labored to convince me that you, my God, were my father rather than he. And in this endeavor, you helped her to gain victory over her husband. His moral superior, she rendered obedient service to him. For in this matter, she was being obedient to your authority. And he later writes, she tried to win him for you. She eventually did. She tried to win him for you, speaking of him, uh, speaking of you, by her virtues through which you made her beautiful, so that her husband loved, respected, and admired her. That's the kind of peculiar, alien, strange beauty that Peter is calling on these women to exhibit, which he uses to break stone-cold hearts. Whenever Peter then goes on to address adorning in verse 3, it's important to see he's not taking up a new topic. Peter is not some fundamentalist pulpiteer with women's fashion as his hobby horse. This is no more a blanket ban on particular hairstyles or jewelry than it is on clothing. You see, the text makes that quite clear. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. This is no more a ban on all jewelry than it is a ban on all clothing. This is a, this is a rebuke of ostentatious, of elaborate, of extravagant adornment, a preoccupation with the external. Here's the way God speaks directly to such women. Yahweh said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore Yahweh will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and Yahweh will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, Yahweh will take away the finery of their anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. You see the preoccupation with the external. That isn't simply subjective. As if... You get to make a call whenever it gets... There's, there's a point. And it's obvious whenever someone has crossed that line and it's a gaudy, ostentatious display of outward beauty. But realize this. There's a kind of obsession with natural beauty, simple beauty, unadornment, that's just as gaudy and fleshly the point is this kind of preoccupation with the external. This obsession with physical beauty. And it indicates a slavery and a bondage. Not to Christ, but to the gods of this world. And their wages are severe. And culture bears it out. The way that shame or age or pornography or lust or sex trafficking can crush a woman in our culture indicates how these gods are worshipped and what they demand and sacrifice. So that's Peter's adornment don't. His adornment do, verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 
Some women are very skilled at making pretty look ugly. They focus so much on the outward that inside it's allowed to putrefy and rot to an extent that, that's just inescapably obvious to anyone that has, beyond once you look, if there's any kind of conversation, it becomes apparent. That's a thin veneer for a whole lot of ugly. Physical beauty is fleeting, and Peter is calling for these women to pursue an imperishable beauty that's so deep and works its way out. And this imperishable beauty he speaks of specifically as a feminine beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. What does this consist of? I think the, the best way to see it is to contrast this woman with the quarrelsome wife of Proverbs. Proverbs 21.9 It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. 21.19 It's better to live in a, desert, in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Or Proverbs 27.15 and 16 A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. Peter speaks of this gentle and quiet spirit as an imperishable beauty. A submissive spirit is not an ugly thing. It's not a shameful thing to be taken on like rags. It is a regal queen's robe to wear as glory. Such beauty doesn't find itself to be dirt under man's feet, but a crown on his head. Proverbs 12.4, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness to his bones. Douglas Wilson comments, When a woman's crown is placed at a man's feet, the first thing he does is take it and place it on his head. Such beauty as it is imperishable is no doubt part of that imperishable inheritance that Peter spoke of in 1 and verse 4. And remember, he spoke of that inheritance, that salvation, as something that we come to obtain in this present life by faith. And one day, that inner redemption and beauty will be matched by the redemption of the body. Pursue such beauty. And as we've seen Peter do so often, he goes on to root his command in the Old Testament. He speaks of the holy women who hoped in God adorning themselves in this way. Holy women, holy, distinct, separate, aliens, exiles, pure, honorable conduct flowing from their lives. And they hoped in God. They, they had that living hope of that imperishable inheritance and thus they put on this imperishable beauty. But as a specific example, Peter gives Sarah, calling Abraham Lord. Now, the only instance we have of this recorded in the Scriptures is whenever God spoke of the promise of child to come through Sarah, and Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? This was hardly Sarah's finest moment. And yet you see kind of the casual way, just the, the, the natural way that she does this lets you know that this was her natural inclination. We speak a lot about how our good deeds, our best of deeds are still tainted with sin. 
Take heart in this, saints. How often, even in some of our worst moments, does the truth that we're a new creation in Christ still bear out with a glimmer? Such that our God would celebrate the known instance of it in His Word in this way? Sarah was submissive to Abraham, even to a fault at times. But for the most part, it was done in faith, and it was beautiful, and it's held out. And you're her children. You are the daughters of Sarah. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The if here is indicative. You, you, you reflect this feminine beauty and glory that Sarah had if you're not fearful of anything that is frightening and you do good. The, the if is indicative. It, it means not that doing this makes you her daughter, but it indicates you are. In the same way that a daughter having her mother's eyes doesn't make her her daughter, it indicates that she is. Daughters of Sarah, you have a heritage much more precious than striking eyes in Sarah. It's a beauty of the soul. Isaiah 51.2 calls for the people of God to look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. Galatians 4.31, Paul says, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Meaning, we're not those who are outside of the inheritance and promises and salvation of God. We're not children of Agar. But we're the offspring of Sarah, heirs to the promise. Behind this gentle and feminine submissiveness of the daughters of Sarah, as the people of God, is a feminine fearlessness and resolve to do good unto the Lord no matter the cost. The submission that's called for here is not weakness. It's strength. It's a faith and hope in God. So obvious, so beautiful, that God will use to break a husband's heart of stone. In a poem, John Piper calls this beauty as he's beheld it in his wife, Velvet steel. To understand the poem, you have to understand that Noel Piper was born Noel Henry. And so he writes, I bless the Lord for Henry roots that I have come to know, and for the firstborn of their shoots now forty years ago. I bless Him for the branch begun and nourished from their stock, and for your angle in the sun and nurture in the rock. I bless Him for the wind that blew and brought you second life and for the grace that made you new and then made you my wife. I bless Him for the steady course and for the even keel, for solid bone along your back and for the velvet steel. But unlike government and lords, Peter doesn't leave off with the party called to submit. He goes on to address believing husbands. 
He calls for them to live with their wives according to knowledge. I think that's the better way to render in an understanding way or you might have in a considerate way. Strictly, it's according to knowledge. There's a translation issue, an interpretation issue at stake here, not just translation. According to knowledge. Knowledge of what? Well, you notice in every other instance, with every, every other aspect of this household code, code, there's a reference to God. Fearing and reverencing Him, living unto Him. So I think this according to knowledge is the opposite of the passions of our former ignorance. 1 and 14. Living according to knowledge then is being sober-minded. Awake unto God, living in reference to God. And it's only whenever you know God that you can really know your wife. Because whenever you know God, you know this. This is how you're to relate to her. As if this text wasn't offensive enough already. As the weaker vessel. Vessel clearly, I think, means body. You have Paul using similar language in 2 Corinthians 4 whenever he speaks of our bodies as a a jar of clay, an earthen vessel. This is a generalization, the weaker vessel. It's a generalization, and our culture hates generalizations. Well, they hate some of them. They're inescapable. We all use them. The sky is blue. Is it always? Whenever you start having to qualify every statement you make, Something's askew. You see, whenever, whenever we hate generalizations that are true, it says a great deal more about our souls than it does the generalization. Which ones do we hate? Why do we hate them? What's that saying? Are there some women who are stronger than men? Well, of course. But you'll always find a stronger man. The Olympics bear this out and testify to this reality. Note, though, that Peter calls for husbands not to despise their wives as the weaker vessel, but to honor them. There's something about this aspect of being the weaker vessel that's worthy of honor. It's not a, this weakness isn't a weakness in that sense. Car windows are designed to break into tiny pieces whenever they're struck, but that isn't a weakness, that's a strength. Weakness isn't a weakness when it's by design for for a glorious reason. Doug Wilson asked, which is better, a five-pound sledge or a china teacup? Which would win a contest between them? He later writes, the weakness Peter mentioned is God's design, not her fault. It's not a fault at all. Weakness is only a fault if it falls short of the design. A china cup is weaker than the five-pound sledge referred to earlier, but a hammer is no good at all for drinking tea. There are strengths that a woman has that a man falls far short of. Chesterton wrote, Nothing can ever overcome that one enormous sex superiority, that even the male child is born closer to his mother than to his father. No one staring at, the frightful female, at that frightful female privilege can quite believe in the equality of the sexes. A woman's strength and glory is that she is woman. She's feminine. And in this, she will always excel man. She doesn't have to excel man at being man. She excels him at being woman. And that's a glorious and beautiful thing. It's a thing to be protected and honored. Let me adapt an illustration John Piper uses. If 
you're walking along the street with your wife, and she happens to have multiple black belts and multiple forms of martial arts, and two thugs demand your money, and you know that she could lay them both out flat easy. Still, you push her to the back, and you step forward, and you say, if my wife is going to beat you up, and she can, but if she is to, she's going to do so over my unconscious body. Or, let me change it. A particular woman might make a better soldier than a particular man. That does not mean she should. It is man's glory to die to protect the glory and beauty of women. When women shine with this kind of imperishable beauty that's spoken of here, it's powerful. It's this powerful. Men will die to protect it. Helen of Troy bears witness not only to the lust and perversion of men, but the lie gives testimony to the truth. It's man's glory to lay down his life for the flourishing of this imperishable feminine beauty. Die as Christ did for his bride so that she might shine and be made beautiful. That's what it means to honor woman as the weaker vessel. And yet, you notice that you honor her as the weaker vessel since, because she's an heir with you. There's difference and there's sameness. She's an heir with you. This is, this is Paul's point in Galatians 3. People try to use Galatians 3 to say, uh, 1 Peter 3 doesn't mean what you're saying it means. Whenever Galatians 3 harmonizes with Peter right here. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The egalitarian lie would have women coming up short on gold medals. There's no difference. They're all the same. Put them all in the same category. It's the egalitarian lie that robs women. The biblical truth says you're co-heirs in Christ. The culture has women trying to act like men, men behaving as women, and all of us trying to play the part of God and self-identify and determine who we are. God calls for us to be obedient children and for men to be men and women to be women and this is most liberating. Whenever you try to make a fish swim like a bird, you don't get better fish, you get dead fish. And you kill men and you kill women whenever you try to blur the lines between what make them what they are. These commands are meant for men and women to flourish as men and women in Christ. Now, husbands, do this so that your prayers are not hindered, verse 7. The reason why prayers would be hindered by any failure to honor and live in this considerate, in this knowledgeable way, the reason why is really simple. Sin hinders prayer. When you come before the Holy God harboring unconfessed sin... And, and, and the failure to honor your wife isn't like it's some hidden sin. 
Whenever you come harboring unconfessed sin, you're saying, I cherish the sin more than my God. And if as a husband, you won't listen to your wife, why should God listen to you? You're called to be an image of God's authority. And God is saying, in loving chastisement, beware, lest I begin to reflect your image. You're reflecting an authority that cares nothing for those underneath you? Let's see how you like it. The difference being that God does this in righteous love, and the husband who fails to listen to his wife does it in selfishness and sin. For too long, Christians have tried to maintain the status quo. We've found ourselves to be protecting lesser lies from the threat of great, greater lies. We, you would think that if we got a man to be with a woman, we'd celebrate. Well, that's good insofar as it goes, but that's not what God calls for. Chesterton once quipped, the business of progressives is to go on making mistakes. The business of conservatives is to prevent those mistakes from being corrected. I'm afraid in far too many churches, the agenda is just a 20-year-old version of liberalism against the more modern variant. These commands have always been radical. We are exiles. We are foreigners. We're pilgrims. What we long for is to see a new humanity in Christ where husbands honor their wives and wives submit to their husbands, shining with feminine and masculine glory respectively. We rejoice in God's common grace, but what we long for is to see His redeeming grace. So indeed, the home is a castle under siege. Whenever sin entered the world, with the very temptation, it was at this point that the castle was being attacked. Yes, God's Word was, was right under there with it. Was it not? Did God actually say? But it came at the wall of marriage as He approached the woman. And sin immediately devastated the home. And this world would tell us that they would ridicule our beliefs as antiquated, an an old relic, an antique, as dilapidated ruins. But we know that these ruins not only testify to a pristine glory which we fell from, but that we're standing on Christ, the cornerstone of the new creation, and a glory that's imperishable. The world would have, have us replace marriage with something that's throwaway, something that's perishable, something that's fading. But we're exiles of a heavenly kingdom. We're the bride of Christ and we're walking the aisle home. And the aisle may be one of suffering where we're ridiculed and persecuted because of this. But we know we will reach that feast day with our Lord. And we have the honor of taking up our marriages here and now to testify to the bridegroom's love of his bride so that she might radiate with beauty. This world can keep its pathetic story. I'll settle for this one that's, that's beyond any fairy tale come true. This castle will not fall. We shall live blessedly ever after with our heavenly bridegroom and Lord. Let's bow our knee before Him in prayer now.
Father, make your bride beautiful for the sake of Christ. Particularly, may husbands love and sacrifice and honor their wives as the weaker vessel, understanding how that's a beautiful, regal glory that they want to see shine. And may wives submit to their husbands in a way that is submission to you. Father, may all this be done under the Lordship of Christ and for His name. In Jesus' name, amen.